listening to a Clovis Hills podcast. You're about to hear from one of our teaching pastors. I want to encourage you, go download the Clovis Hills app where you can listen to sermons, you can give, you can do the growth group questions. They're on there too. And you can study God's word together. God bless you guys and go be the church. Um, It actually is the first day of the NFL season. So we rejoice on high. And every year I put my hopes in the San Diego Chargers of Los Angeles. And every year they disappoint me dearly. So buckle up for my heartbreak again. Anyways, um, hey, yesterday, something, this church did something really cool. We've had a partnership for, oh gosh, almost 25 years with another church here in town. Um, it was formerly known as El Encino Baptist Church. Now it's called New Life Baptist Church or uh, Iglesia Batista Nueva Vida, right? And, and some of you are like, whoa, he can speak Spanish. I, I, Yo hablo poquito. So um, anyways, I don't know if you guys know this, but a couple years ago, probably three, four years ago, uh, Pastor Moises Garcia of uh, Iglesia Clovis Hills, uh, he and his group, they were meeting in the venue at 1030. Um, he, he actually, they merged that small congregation with El Encino and they became New Life Baptist Church. And we've been partnering with that church for years, so it was just a perfect partnership. And uh, we brought back something that we've been doing for years as well, too, called Faithful Feet. And yesterday, we gave out over 700 pairs of brand new shoes to kids in that community. I think we have pictures. Do we have pictures? Yeah, there they are. It was really cool. Um, Kids from all over that neighborhood. And you may not know this, but that church on a Sunday morning right now is full. It is packed out and God is using Pastor Moises and um, such a cool thing. Also, um, they brought the fire department in and the fire department brought the fire hose out and they're like hosing the kids down. Not like hosing the kids down, but like just, you know, wetting their feet like a little bit. Um, And we call it faithful feet. So it was like a little foot washing with the fire department. And then they got a brand new pair of shoes. There's bounce houses and food. It It was just a good time. So thank you for being so generous and being the church, guys. Good job on that one. So, you know, uh, today, well, last week, Pastor Mitch, like, preached this stellar sermon. And I told him, I said, this better be good this week, dude. I gave you, like, the best part of Abraham, like, that best story. And I went and I preached down in Southern California at my, one of my old, old churches I passed. I was a youth pastor at in Carlsbad. And, you know, when you do that, you kind of bring like, you do like a best of, like your best stuff for the last year and you bring it to one place and it was great. But um, I came back this week and the way, the way it works is like, we actually plan out our preaching calendar a year in advance. So I'm already working on 2022. So usually on Monday morning, I go right to the calendar. I'm like, okay, what's up this week? And I get working on it because there's other people working. I don't know if you know this. We have a stellar group of people that write all the growth group questions every week. They get together every week. It's uh, people, Bible teachers, people with seminary degrees, retired pastors, just people that know the Bible backwards and forward. And they put these questions together. And um, so like to change the sermon on a dime, sometimes that screws everything up because they've already written a bunch of questions. They're already working through the process. So I woke up Monday morning, opened up the preaching calendar and looked at the passage and went, oh no, what was I thinking? This is a hard passage to preach. Why did I make Mitch preach this one? So anyways, that's what we're getting today. Today is a passage out of Genesis um, chapter 18 where Abraham, and we're in the last of our Abraham series, Abraham is trying to negotiate with God 
Because God is about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I read this passage Monday morning and went, oh no, why did I pick this? But it is God's word and when we come up against it, there's always truth in it. So I would love it if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, if you're able to, and we're going to read from the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down to see what they have done, if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be, far be it from you. Will you not judge the earth and do right? And the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now, I've been so bold to speak to the, to the Lord. By the way, like previously as you're reading through the story of Abraham, God has always spoke to Abraham and he just obeyed. This is the first time Abraham's kind of talking back, okay? And he says, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 could be found there? And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so spoiled to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He's pushing his luck, right? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abram, he left and Abraham returned home. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this is a tricky passage because you get to it and there's, there's places, especially when you read through the Old Testament, right, that, that are, are, are difficult because sometimes it appears like the God of the Old Testament is like kind of angry and cranky and he's sending locusts and plagues and destroying cities. And, and um, you know, if you go to Israel to this day, you can go into the Dead Sea Valley. You can go to the place where Sodom and Gomorrah, they think, was. It doesn't, there's no ruins, there's nothing left, but there's this incredible like um, sulfur content in the soil, 
right? So, so you, you can go there, you can see that the Lord destroyed the, the, these two cities. And you're like, why is God so angry in the Old Testament, but like so lovey and squishy in the New Testament? What's going on here? Right? And we can see that discrepancy. But I, I want to I remind you of something. Sometimes we tend to look at the Bible and we look at it in little chunks because we're used to hearing it in sermons. And we forget to look at the whole picture, the whole narrative arc, the whole story of the Bible. And I want us to understand that today. Um, so there's three things we're going to learn today. Okay? If you have your outline, it's in the Clovis Hills app. Or if you just take notes on paper, whatever, whatever you do, I encourage you to pull that out right now on your phone. Some of you are like checking your fantasy scores, pretending it's the app. I get it. I'm winning right now too. Don't worry. Um, but the first thing you have to do when you come up against a piece of scripture that is difficult is you have to, you have to understand what the background is. What's going on in the story? Okay. So, um, let me, let, me, let me help you understand like the, the, the narrative arc of the Bible. So uh, when this happens, Abraham existed uh, 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC, okay? So he exists in 2000 BC, 4,000 years ago. And you have to first understand what the world was like back then. The world 4,000 years ago was a very violent place. It was a place where like, you know, like we have a high value in life in our culture right now. But I need you to understand something. Like in the ancient world, it wasn't. One of the reasons women always wanted to have sons, it wasn't just to carry on the family name. Um, it was a violent world. And the more sons you had meant the more protected, the more warriors you had to protect your tribe. And at any given moment, they, everyone in every tribe lived with the fear that another tribe 20, 30 miles away would come in in the middle of the night with their men and they would kill everyone. They would steal all the young girls, steal all the ba baby boys, turn them into slaves, rape the women and kill the men and leave the women there to, to starve to death. And that was a reality in the world. So women that had lots of sons were almost viewed in their tribe as heroic because you were helping save the tribe, keep the tribe safe. This was a violent world. And this is what I want us to understand is that God always works with the substance that he has. He works with the culture that is there. He doesn't, you know, and, and so if it's an ancient violent world, he's gonna work exactly with that and then he's gonna bring the culture along and he does the same thing with you and me. I want you to think about this. Imagine if you accepted Jesus today and tomorrow God expected you to act like Pastor Dave Love. Those of you listening online, if you've never met Dave Love, he's pretty awesome. Okay, another example. If you became a Christian today and God said, okay, by tomorrow, you better be at Mother Teresa level, Billy Graham level. We'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? But see, God works with the substance he has and he meets us in our mess, in our sins, and he does the same with cultures. He meets cultures in their violence, in their pain, wherever it's at, and God is meeting the ancient world where the ancient world is at. I'll give you a little example of how it works, though, because then he always calls it higher. And you see this through the whole narrative arc of the, of the Bible. I'll give you a, just a, small, a couple small examples of how, how he does that. Okay, I have a little graphic here. Go ahead and put that graphic up, Sarah. Sarah Love is my fourth child. Um, anyways, in Deuteronomy, God tells Joshua and the Israelites, go into the land of Canaan and kill all of them. 
Don't leave any of them alive. No children, nothing. Kill them all. And you're like, oh, I don't like that because we read it with our 21st century eyes. We also live 2,000 years on the other side of Christ, you have to realize. But in the ancient world, that's how it worked. It was a violent world. And if the Israelites were like, we're just going to move into Canaan, how's it going? The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Perizzites, the Mosquito Bites, all of them would just come and kill them. Wipe them out. That's the way it worked back then. So God sends them in there. But here's, here's the thing. Once they're in the land of Canaan, God gives them this command. He calls, calls this culture higher. And look what, look what he says. In, he said it in Leviticus and he says it in Deuteronomy. He says, the, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So he goes from wipe them out to now anyone that moves into your land, love them, treat them like they're yours. Have hospitality. And you're like, okay, well that, that's, that's good. But you keep watching God call Israel higher and higher. By the time you get to Jesus, Jesus says, oh, you've heard it said, hate your enemies, love your neighbor. I, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus just keeps calling us higher. And God keeps working with the substance he has. And this is what he's do, done with humanity. See, sometimes we look at it from the other side, 2,000 years on the other side of the cross, and we go, how barbaric. But yes, the world was barbaric. And believe it or not, I've traveled the world. The world still is barbaric. It is still a very dangerous place. We live in the suburbs, most of us. And is a very safe place in comparison to much of the other world. So God is always calling higher. Robert Alter, he's a, um, a scholar. He, he's actually, uh, was at, he's retired now, but he was at Berkeley. And he's a, a Jew, Jewish scholar, he's a historian, and he talks about in the Bible how like there's these common practices of the culture, of every culture that's going on there, and God just keeps undermining them and, and eradicating them from, from, from history. And a great example of that is polygamy. In the Bible, you see polygamy. Abraham had multiple wives. Isaac had multiple wives. You can go on and on and on. But here's what you find. That was a common practice in the whole ancient world. It's the way it worked. And sometimes we see it as barbaric and whatever. And, and it, it, it probably was to a degree. It was probably how they survived also to a degree back then. But I want you to understand something. If you read the Bible from front to back, you see that purposely this common practice that everyone thought was normal. We have practices in our culture now that everyone thinks is normal. Right? That, that might be undermining relationships and family. But this common practice of polygamy, everywhere you find it in the Bible, it created chaos. It created relational chaos between the husband and the wives, between the wives and the wives, between the children of the different wives. It wrecked families. And you keep seeing it. You see it in Abraham. You see it in Isaac. You see it in Jacob. On and on and on you see it until eventually by the time we get to the Roman world, um, polygamy is, is really outlawed within Israeli society. And God works with the substance he has and he keeps calling it higher. Good news for us, right? God works with where you're at, but he's calling you higher. Amen. One more. Um, progeny. How many oldest children do we have in the room? Other rooms too. Raise your hand. Okay, you people. <laughs> Responsible 
obligated. I'm a, I'm a baby in the family, so I'm like the spoiled one that is impulsive. And, but anyways, um, in the ancient world, everything the father owned went to the oldest child. And the youngest might get a couple things, but he had to fend for himself. And a lot of times he would just live under the servitude of the oldest child. It's not fair at all. But in the ancient world, that was totally fair. But what you find again, everywhere in scripture, everywhere we see that is chaos. Till that no longer becomes part of Israelite culture. They become different than the world. It's the same with you. There are things that the world practices at normal that will create chaos in your life. It'll create relational chaos in your life. But God is calling those of you who are in Christ Jesus higher in the same way. So what, the next thing you have to do when you come to a troubling text is you have to ask, what is this text really trying to say, especially to the original people, the people reading it for the first time? Because sometimes, you know, we like to just get our own meaning out of it. Like, my, I like it when my Bible just talks to me and tells me what I want to hear, right? But that's not, what, that's not what the way it works. What did the original th- thinkers when, when, or the original readers when, when they read this? And see, here's the thing. When they would have read this, they would have caught right away, oh, Abraham is negotiating with God. How many of you have tried to negotiate with God before? I have. It's cute, huh? God, if you do this, I'll do that. God, if you do this, I'll do that. And, you know, God looks at it. He's not mad. I think he thinks it's cute, to to be honest. Here's the God that knows the beginning and the end. He knows every bit about you. He knows all of it. And you're trying to negotiate him when he knows how it ends. You know, usually when you're in a trial, when you're in a test in your life, that's when we try and negotiate with God. Life is hard. I'm in a test. Come on, God, get me out of this. I want to remind you. That the best teachers are always silent during a test because they want you to learn. They want you to learn. So they would have caught right away. And then one of the things they would have read, which I think is super interesting. This is for all the Bible nerds in the room and, and online. We've got Bible nerds online right now, I know. Is one of the things that, um, that the Israelites had, it was a practice, is how they divided people up, how they, they separated people into groups. And it, it goes back to, um, to Moses. And see, Moses had all of the Israelites coming to him with their problems, and he had to be the judge for all the problems. And he was overwhelmed by it. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, said, what you're doing is terrible. That's going to kill you. You can't handle all of these people. What he realized, the average person um, really can only deal with 50 to 150 people in acquaintances and in, in, in everything, everything you have. Tribes split usually at 149. I don't know if you know that. But what Jethro did is he broke it up. He said, get people that you trust, people that fear God, and break the people up into hundreds, fifties, twenties, and tens. And organize them in that way. And have those people oversee 100 and them oversee fifties, twenties, and tens. And I don't know if you noticed, but Abraham negotiates down from the 50s to the 30s to the 20s to the 10s. And 10, believe it or not, is the bare minimum that the rabbis, that the Israelites believed you could have to create community. See, they didn't think like we did as individuals. We think like a bag of marbles. They thought like a bunch of grapes connected to the vine, right? And what they believed was was that you can't have community smaller than 10 people. This is one of the reasons as a church, no matter what campus you're on, we do growth groups here. Because we believe, we believe 
that, yes, the gospel needs to be preached every week. The Bible needs to be taught. We teach the background. We do things like that. But transformation is just as powerful in a circle, maybe even more powerful in a circle of 10 than in rows of hundreds or thousands. And this is why today, even out at our pavilion, we have our, our growth group connection here at the North Campus. If you're in Novato, talk to Pastor David. Or if you're in Old Town, you talk to Pastor Dwayne. And we want to help you get in a growth group because change happens in circles a lot of times, not in the rows. God may spark the change in the rows. He may bring something to light in the rows. But really, it's as you walk with people over a long time, change happens in the circle. And 10 was the, the Israelite minimum. So I encourage you to do that. We got great growth groups here at North. I know there's two that I know of off the top of my head that are starting this week uh, or next week. Carrie Meyer, Pastor Sean Meyer's wife is doing one um, on Thursday nights, a women's study. And then we have a Tuesday night growth group that's actually meeting here on campus too. So there's childcare and all that available too, but go, go to the thing. So here, here's the other thing they would have read as they looked at this passage is they would have saw right away, oh, Abraham is going to God and he's pleading with God. He's representing the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to God on their behalf. And they would have thought right away, oh, Abraham's being a priest. Because see, that's what priests did in the ancient world. Not just Jewish priests, but just about every culture had some sort of temple. They had some sort of priest that represented the gods or God or Yahweh, the God of Israel for the people. Now, nowadays, um, we're Protestants. We don't have priests. Um, even though I do, like, I have, there's a, a friend of mine. She, uh, she's a mom on my son's old soccer team. And she used to always be like, and you're a priest. You know, she'd always say that to me. I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. Yeah, you're a priest and you're married even. That's weird. And, I, you know, um, <laughs> I just went with that. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, darn Protestants. Uh, but <laughs> see, a priest wasn't just a guy with a funny hat. A priest was a mediator between God and the people. And he went to God on behalf of the people and made the sacrifice for the people. And he was a guy that lived his life probably a little holier than the people, or hopefully he did. Not all the priests in the Bible did. But hopefully he was set apart and he was living his life holy and he could go before God on behalf of the people. And then he could hear from God and bring God's word to the people. Right? And that was the way it worked. And the early readers of, of Genesis, they would have read that right away. The original readers would have went, oh, Abraham is representing these people. He's being a priest, a mediator, if you will. He's mediating, right? Well, here's what I want you to know. That's 4,000 years ago. You live in 2021, 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. And here's what the Bible tells us now. Back then, the priest did go before God for you. But today, the Bible tells us this. When you get to the end of the book, the last chapters of the book, it talks about how if you are in Christ Jesus, is this the church? Is this a temple? No, this is a building. It doesn't even work that well sometimes. Air conditioning didn't work last service. I was sweating. I was preaching. <laughs> Who's the temple? The people of God are the temple. 
See, and it, the apostle Paul said to the, the Christians living in Ephesus, he said, you are a royal priesthood, a holy people, a special people belonging to God who's called you out of darkness. See, you're the priesthood now. There's a priesthood of all believers. And so, so look at your neighbor right now and say, I'm the church. I'm the priest. Some of you are just panicking. You're like, I don't want to be a priest. I like sex. <laughs> you heard nothing I said that whole time. That's all you were thinking about. <laughs> but because of Jesus, he's the mediator now. So when you look at a, a tough piece of scripture, the other thing I, I, I always tell people to do, the next thing you have to do is after you've you know, looked at the background or you've gone to your pastor or you've gone to Blue Letter Bible online or read a commentary, and then you, you tried to look at it through the eyes of the, uh, of the original readers as best as you can. And, and then if it's still troublesome, the next thing you should do is you say, well, where's Jesus in this? Where's the gospel in this? Where's the good news in this? Because the Bible is not just a collection of stories that make little points along the way. The Bible is telling you about how God saw that humankind was destined for hell, that we had sinned, we had rebelled against God, that we were all destined for an eternity apart from God. And God loved us so much that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And see the righteousness and the justice of God, what is right, the rule says that those that are separated from God die apart from God. And God knew that. And he sent Jesus to come and live a perfect life in your place and die on the cross so that the righteousness, the justice of God could be fulfilled and that you could grab hold on to the mercy and the grace of God and live in that. So that when God looks at you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Like the old hymn said, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid. Okay, anyways. It's getting Baptist on you guys. Listen. That's why point number three is where's the gospel? Whenever you get to a tough piece of scripture, you ask, where's the gospel? I love what it says in 1 Timothy. See, Paul wrote to this young man, this young pastor, Timothy. And he's got this squirrely church and I'm sure they had all kinds of political things about Rome they were arguing about back then. They had plagues back then. They had all that stuff to worry about back then. They you know, they didn't have recalls for governors back then. They just killed them. They poisoned them. The Caesars were always killing their family members so their family members couldn't kill them. Whole, if you think our political system is a mess, don't worry about it. But Paul writes to him, and he doesn't tell him about all those things. He says to Timothy, this young pastor, he says, For there is one God, first, 2 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, that you don't need a priest anymore. You don't need a pastor anymore. That once you have Jesus living in you, the Spirit of God lives in you. You're the temple. You're the church. You're God's special possession. Hey, got some Pentecostals over here. I like it. So God is going to pour his justice on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. And you have to understand something. In the ancient world, like when 
They say Sodom and Gomorrah was bad. It was more than bad. One of the gods they worshiped was Moloch and Moloch required that you at least sacrifice one of your children to the fire. So they were killing children, pedophilia was rampant. There was sexual sin everywhere. It was a violent, violent, dark place. The poor, the children, the women were all always in danger in a society like that. And God sent his justice on them. But here, here's, here's what I want you to know. Sometimes, you know, 9-11 was yesterday and we celebrate, we celebrate those who, who lost their lives and those who fought for us and all of those things. And here, here's what I want you to know. There's always a pastor whenever a tragedy happens, some famous pastor rises up and says, this is God's punishment on America because of homosexuality or because of all the Raider fans in Oakland or because of on and on and on. He picks some pet sin that he hates. And yes, being a Raider fan is a sin. I'm kidding, Raider fans. I love you. I'm kidding. I'm in black today. Come on. Um, so, but God, it came to me this morning. I, I didn't write it in my sermon or anything, but, it, but God tells the prophet Ezekiel why he killed Sodom, why he destroyed Sodom. He said, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, that's Gomorrah, were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty, like prideful. I don't need you, God. I do it my way. I'm the boss. They were haughty, and they did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you've seen. See, there's this thing that the Apostle Paul in Romans talks about, about how at some point, people, they can become so wicked, God just hands them over to their sin. And, 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 he, and, he, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm handing them over to their own sins. Let, let, let them go. And C.S. Lewis talked about this concept that everyone, there's two types of people in this world throughout history. And it'll be those that look at God and say, God, your will be done. Or those that say, no, God, my will be done. And see, God will respect you either way. If you say, God, your will, that means I'm with you, Lord. I walk with you. If you say, God, my will, what I want, that means you've rejected him. And here's what I need you to understand. There's no in-between on it. There's no in-between. You're either in Christ Jesus, forgiven, or you're not. And th- this, is, this is the thing. God is patient, and I always tell you that any decision you make, even if it's an indecision, that's a decision not to follow God. But here's the good news. See, Peter, remember Peter, the guy that denied Jesus three times? Sometimes we come here and we feel so guilty because we've been working on our testimony for a while. We've been sinning or we've been struggling or we've just forgotten God and we come in and we feel guilty. I want to remind you, Peter denied Jesus three times in public and Jesus gently brought him home. But this is what Peter said and he learned it firsthand in in 2 Peter 3, 9. It says, the Lord... The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
See, that God is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's waiting on you to choose Jesus. And the Bible says that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. See, John understood it when he said, but as many as received them, to those who believed in his name, he's given them the right to become children of God. That, that when you decide, I've been going my way, it's been my will, but I want God's will for my life. And I'm gonna trust that Jesus has mediated that for me, that Jesus has paid the price for me. And when I don't do it right, when I don't get it right, he picks me up, I'm gonna walk with him. And when I fail, I'm gonna get up and walk with him again. It's those that say, I want Jesus, I've received him. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future, but you have to make that decision to receive him. You have to take possession of him. And see, Jesus understood this. He talked to a church in the book of Revelation and he said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone listens, I will come in. And really, God is standing at the door of everyone's heart, waiting for you to make the decision. Will you open it and receive him? Or will you go about living life the way the, way the rest of the world wants to? That's your call. God will respect you on that. He's patient. But here's what I've learned as a pastor. The longer you wait on that, the harder it is to hear that knock at the door of your heart. And what happens is your heart hardens to sin. To at a certain point, you just don't hear it anymore. And God has handed you over to it. And I don't want that for anyone. The riches, the love, the grace of Jesus is offered to all of you, to all of us. But you have to be brave enough, you have to be bold enough to take it. Let's pray.